Helen Thompson, welcome to Fritankepod. Thank you. Uh, you just came out with a book in Sweden, uh, in a Swedish edition, I should say, called Mannen som vaknade upp död och andra fascinerande berättelser om extraordinära hjärnor. It's a very long title in Swedish, but your English title is unthinkable. Um, and it's obviously about people who have very special brains or brain damages that creates a lot of weird things. We're going to talk about that. But first tell me, how how did the idea of writing this book come come to you? So I have a background in neuroscience. I had a I did a degree in neuroscience and then I did a degree in science journalism uh, because I loved finding out about the brain but I also liked telling other people about these the research. Um, and so I worked at a magazine in the UK called New Scientist for a, about eight years um, where I would write articles and features about the brain and, and often I would come across these strange case studies um, in scientific papers of people who would have, um, like you say, damage or a, a condition that... Um, meant that they saw um, and experienced the world in a very different way to to most of us. And as most scientific papers are very objective and very dry, in mm. um, I I sort of started to talk, think about well, who are these people who are actually who are these case studies, mm. and um, and then I uh, gradually over the years started to get to know the researchers and then the, their own, and they would introduce me to their case studies. And I suddenly realized that they, you know, they had these extraordinary stories to tell. And, and actually, that was the most fascinating aspect for me um, of learning about the brain is is learning about how it can go um, wrong and how it can behave in different ways and, and how that then affects the person themselves and their life experiences. Mm. Because you actually travel to see these special Mm. patients uh, and get a relation to them get to know yeah. them so i loved oliver Sacks and the way yeah. that he wrote his books and um but he often saw his his uh, case studies as patients because obviously yeah. he was a neuro neurologist yeah. and i wanted to do something a bit different i i wanted to find out how their brains and their strange and peculiar experiences actually affected them on a day-to-day -day basis so i wanted to go and meet them at their home um meet their friends meet their family um you know perhaps see them at work to find out what how these these extraordinary brains actually affect you during your normal day not just as a patient in a hospital or a research subject um because mm. that's where all the actual fascinating detail and um actually and all the colorful stories came out yeah yeah um you have uh, you have nine special cases mm -hmm. right in the book nine individuals that you describe which one of these were most unexpected uh, to get to know for you or um, most strange or, or something okay so I, I have sort of favorites in for different reasons yeah. so Sharon I absolutely loved she had a condition called uh, developmental topographical disorientation disorder mm. <laughs> which essentially means she can't create a mental map of her environment um, and it means that she's complete almost permanently lost even between her own bedroom and kitchen And she was fascinating because she had a very sad story that when this condition started showing itself, she was around five years old and her, she told her mum about it. She, she basically suddenly realised one day that everything around her looked different. She couldn't, everything she thought should be on the left was actually on the right and she was completely disorientated. She told her mum and her mum said, don't ever tell anybody about this because I think you're a witch and they'll burn you. Oh. So this horrific a comment from her mum that really sort of scarred her for the rest of her life so she never told anybody about it so the, the the fascinating thing about Sharon was was finding out how for around 30 years she actually hid 
the fact that she was almost permanently lost from her loved ones and the people around her and the tricks she used. Um, she found a trick when she was very young that she realised that if she closed her eyes and spun around in circles, suddenly her world would right itself and look normal again. And mm-hmm. then, But this would happen hundreds of times a day. It would flip and suddenly look different. Um, and so her story is really interesting. I, I really liked and enjoyed meeting her because now she's in her 60s and um, you know, I, explain it, I explain it in the book, but she, she eventually... Uh, discovered that she had this condition um probably only about 15 years ago now so she was she was in her 50s i think when she first mm. found out um and and now how how wonderful and 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 such she's such a happy character and 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 it, it's just a, a stark contrast to how depressed she was while when she mm. had this condition and didn't understand it but and she still has it i mean it hasn't, she still has it yeah. hasn't been treated but her understanding of it and her knowledge of, mm. of that she's not a witch you know she's mm. not going crazy she's not got a mental health disorder she's got something specific wrong in her brain and we now know what that is it's it's the it's a problem with the communication between the different areas of the brain that create a mental map um And just that knowledge that that's what's happened, that that basically her brain puts the pieces of the puzzle together in the wrong order, Mm. um, has allowed her to to just live a happier life and and actually be really proud of of being different and and, and the different ways in which she she succeeds in life and gets around. um, Can it be treated in any way? Not that we know of at Sharon's stage, but the researchers that are looking into the condition think that perhaps children, it's genetic and and um, they've discovered that some families who have it you know it does run in families and which explains perhaps now in retrospect why Sharon's mum said such a horrific comment to her is Sharon now believes that looking back she thinks her mum also had the condition uh-huh. and that it means that it, perhaps she was scared of it perhaps she had had somebody tell her something similar um, and that's why she didn't want Sharon telling anybody about it. So it all kind of made sense now. Um, but okay. they think that perhaps if we could identify it in families and in children, that perhaps we might be able to um, help children at a very young age navigate in different ways, use different parts of their brain to navigate. And, mm. and, and perhaps that might prevent the condition from sh- from, from developing as, as strongly as it did in That's interesting. You, you mean that the, the plastic brain in mm. the sense that other parts could take over the task? Yeah. So if you've naturally not got two parts of your brain or say seven different parts of your brain communicating properly, then perhaps mm. you could tra- teach them to navigate using different methods. So, yeah. um, I mean, they don't quite know what this is going to be yet, but they think that the brain is plastic enough at that young age to overcome if you can, you know, you can teach it to overcome uh, problems like that because mm. it's, it can rewire itself. Um, That's very interesting. But did she explain to you exactly how it f- felt to be lost? I mean, because yeah. some, I mean, f- for myself, for example, I have a very bad sense of location as well. Mm. I, I, if yeah. I go into a very big building with a lot of corridors, I, I won't find my way out. Yeah. But that's obviously fairly normal. But I mean, is it the same kind of lostness? Yeah. But so much it's, worse. it's, 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 it is different in some respects so she described it to me as imagining you coming out of a shop on a busy high street um for me say oxford Mm. street in london Mm. and i turn left to go towards the station and suddenly i realize that the station is actually on my right what's happened is that i've come out of a shop on the opposite side of the street to where i thought i was Mm -hmm. and that's why the station is on the other side of where i thought it should be but that instant that moment where the thing that i think is on the left should be on the left is actually on my right is in our brains we immediately 
flip our world around and reorientate ourselves and it just happens in an instant and we don't think anything of it in and Sharon says it's that instant that where you think something should be on one side of you and is actually on the other is how she feels all of the time when she's disorientated her brain just can't flip it back in and put the pieces in the right place um and so you know it's everything from the mountains that she lives you know she she, li- she lives in denver and so this big mountain landscape that in her mind should be on the right and is actually on the left and mm. and to, to the small being in her kitchen and thinking that the knives drawer the cutlery drawer should be on her left and is actually on you know in a different place and she, she mm. says it's like if you have a bathroom mirror and you look at your bathroom you open the door and you've got a mirror in your bathroom and if you look at your bathroom through the mirror everything will be in 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 your she said you'll recognize it you'll see you know it's your bathroom but nothing will be in the right place she says that's kind of how it feels to her when she when her world is flipped as she calls it do you know if the you know two three years ago the nobel prize in medicine went to this norwegian couple who Mm -hmm. studied navigation does this have anything to do with that yeah absolutely um the the, there were a husband and wife couple who yeah, discovered Mos- Mosul, I think. yeah may yeah Moses like yeah um, and um, they discovered uh, something called place cells in the mm. brain which are cells that fire as we move around and you can actually um, look at rats m- mice and animals as they run around and look at these cells firing and you can tell where the mouse is in the in the cage depending on the pattern of firing of these cells so you can specifically say right that within five centimeters that mouse must be in this location mm. and so we think we, we have the same thing going on in our brain um, and there's lots of things that influence these place cells um, there is an area of the brain that is responsible for recognizing landmarks permanent landmarks um there's another bit of the brain that's responsible for knowing which direction our head is turned in um there's another bit of the brain that's responsible for remembering images of where we've been before and all these things are put it's basically all these things are put together and they they help us create this mental map Mm. and in sharon's brain all these bits are working individually perfectly fine she's got perfect memory there's nothing wrong with her intellectually um but when they chart having a conversation with each other something goes wrong and that conversation doesn't happen uh, well enough for her to create the mental map of her surroundings very very interesting and that, okay so that was one one case that appealed especially to you yeah. what, what you said you had other favorites yeah i'd or say other so um so one of the most interesting people or surprising case studies was Matar, who was a man who had schizophrenia mm. that was controlled using drugs. And one of the rare side effects of his schizophrenia was that he had the delusion of turning into a tiger, mm. which we often we call medical lycanthropy. Which the word is often in what, English. What, what's the word? So in English, it's medical lycanthropy. 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 Yeah. Okay. And in um, so. For us, that's that's more often used in fiction to, to talk about werewolves and, and mm. people who turn into werewolves in fiction. Um, but actually, it's this real it's this real condition that's very very rare. I think there were about thirteen people in the last couple of hundred years have, mm-hmm. have experienced it. And um, from and they can experience turning into any kind of animal. They've had people who thought they were bees, snakes, um, hyenas. Um, for and for Matar, it was turning into a tiger, and. As far as I was aware, with his um, doctors, when I spoke to them, he had um, had this condition under control. And I'd asked whether, and they had written about him in scientific papers, and I asked whether um, he might be willing to talk to me about the experience of turning into a tiger. You know, mm. what does that feel like? Um, and they said, 
um, yeah, sure, we'll ask him. So they asked, are they? And he said, yeah, I'd be happy to, to talk. Um, can you come to Ab- Abu Dhabi? Um, so I said, fine. I jumped on a plane, went <laughs> to Abu Dhabi, thought, you know, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. This is very, very rare that these that this condition ever occurs. Um, so Matar met me at the hospital with his doctor. Um, and he lives alone. He lives with his mum, but, you know, lives independently. And um, came to the hospital. I met met with him, and immediately I sort of knew something wasn't quite right. Um, he was very, very quiet. Um, he, I knew he understood some English, but he wasn't responding to anything I said in English. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I was talking through the doctor as a, who was acting as a translator, um, and he started telling us about his condition. I asked him, did he have, um, you know, what did it feel like to, to, to when he started having that delusion of turning into so he wasn't a tiger all the time no he had um only in the full moon <laughs> yeah well that's where that, that the myth comes from um no it was he said at times he would suddenly feel himself turning into a tiger and it happened once at the barbers and he felt as though that barber was trying to attack him and that he was a tiger and that he needed to attack the barber first and he actually uh tried to um cut the barber's throat um so he tried yeah. to attack him um he's had it when he has been in his uh, bedroom he says alone and he's once tied his feet to concrete blocks to stop himself from being a danger to anybody mm-hmm. uh, when he felt it coming on he wants uh, he um he's wrapped himself up in sheets he says before to try and, and locked his bedroom door knowing that he could be a danger to somebody if if he was feeling like a tiger and, and got out basically mm. so he was explaining all this to me and, and he said I said, well, what does it actually feel like? And he said, oh, well, it starts in my left leg. I get a pain in my left leg and then I it moves to my right and then my hairs all stand up on end. And he says, I feel that my hands start, fingers start turning into claws and then there'll be, um, then I'll, if I look in a mirror, I will see, my, I will see myself as a tiger. Um, and he's talking about this and then suddenly he turns to the doctor who I was with, Hamdi, and he said said something to him in Arabic that I didn't understand and and Hamdi and the another doctor who happened to be in the room suddenly looked very concerned and I said you know what's what's what did he say and they said oh he says he feels like that now and there was just a sort of silence and a, none of us really knew what to do and and suddenly Matar started becoming you know entered the delusion and 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 um it's very hard to explain it makes it sound as though it's not like a an actor sitting there acting like a tiger very different to that it was you know you could really see that it was something so viscerous happening to his body um not physically mm. but in you could see that in his mind this mm. is what was happening and you could see his hands were like stretched out like claws and then there was this low growl that he started trying and you could see he was trying to control it and that it, it was almost coming out involuntarily um and then it started being he started snarling at us um he, then he said he felt like he wanted to attack us um and it, it, the doctors calmed him down and took him took him out and of the room and it was like it suddenly switched off it was like a switch suddenly it went away and he wanted a cigarette and wanted to go outside for a cigarette um, it turned out that he had stopped having his medication because his mum had um, gone. He'd actually taken his sister to a um, to India because she'd been showing signs of schizophrenia as well. So mm-hmm. she'd been taken to, to get treatment, and he'd been living on by himself for a few days. And for whatever reason, he'd stopped taking his medication. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was fascinating because, and you know, very sad as well to actually mm-hmm. see this condition play out in front of me, which um, was extraordinary to experience. Obviously, very very sad for, yeah. for Matar as well do you think the myths of werewolves come from 
persons like this. Yeah, that's what people think. The thought is that mm. perhaps, you know, hundreds, thousands of years ago, if this occurred, then, or, or even hallucinate, more simpler sort of hallucinations mm. may have led to those sort of myths of people mm. turning into animals. Mm. Yeah. And so that for that reason, just to actually see somebody in the midst of something very rare was was interesting. But his condition is so rare that we don't actually know a lot about why it happens and, and why he his schizophrenia has that side effect whereas other people's you know that don't and so from that point of view it was it was um frustrating as well because you, we we don't have the answers but th- you know then again it's it's good to show people that you know there are we don't have the answers to all we can't say for all of these conditions this is what's wrong and this is this is what's happened yeah yeah i'm i'm also fascinated by joel mm. who sort of feels other people's pain he's he would probably if i had to choose one person would probably be my like my, my really? favorite i think okay. yeah tell me about him he is a um well he's he's a he's a, a very eloquent young man who is a neurologist and he's a neurologist yeah he's yeah. a neurologist and he discovered when he was in his 20s um that his brain worked very differently to other people's he is he can feel other people's touch and pain as if it's happening to his own body um he can also feel their emotions his brain cannot distinguish between the things that happen to other people and the things that happen to him he can rationally he's a very very intelligent young man he can you know he knows that when you wave at him it's not his own arm moving but his brain cannot make that distinction and it's because of something that we it's hyper empathy essentially it's something that we all have so Uh, and we know the reason why it's because of something called mirror neurons so we Mm. all have mirror neurons in our brains Mm. and they they act in the same way whether i may i wave it so if i wave at you my mirror neurons will will uh spark in a certain pattern of activity if you wave back at me my mirror neurons will do the exact same pattern of activity and it's thought that that allows us to kind of feel and understand what other people's actions and learn from and learn, others probably yeah and just be able to have a better sense of what somebody put yourself in somebody else's shoes but the reason that we don't act you know when i when i wave i i know this is my arm i feel it and my brain mm. you know perceives that the reason it doesn't do the same when you wave is because there are other neurons coming into the brain cells um, saying no it's not your it's not your arm that's mm. waving uh, and they, it's like a veto signal and it dampens down their activity and so the brain doesn't actually perceive it as happening to its own body um, whereas with Joel his veto signals just don't come in mm. and so his brain you know it, it's seeing these these mirror neuron activity and perceiving that as his own body and so it means that Everybody who is around him, anybody he sees, if they smile at him, his brain will act in the same way as if he's smiling and, mm. feel, and it will produce the emotion of happiness within him. Mm. But obviously, if there's 10 different people in the room all with different emotions mm. or different, he oh, will feel them yeah. all at the same time. Um, and it's the same with pain. So um, if, he, if somebody comes in with a broken arm, for instance, um, he, his body, if he sees that broken arm, his body, his brain will perceive that as as having his own arm is oh, broken okay. and will respond in the same way as if it is so it, w- it will perceive pain um and he says it's not it's not exactly the same as the pain that he re- that actually happens to his own body mm. but it's kind of like an echo of that sensation um and he says sometimes it can be really physic actually painful um he said especially if it's shocking he said somebody once came into his surgery with an amputated arm it had just happened in in, in an er um and he felt as though his own arm was being ampu- had been amputated. Mm. Um, he said, 
and obviously he's got this fascinating career because he's um he's chosen to be a doctor so mm. he's around pain all the time yeah. and um you know his stories are just incredible about how well firstly how he controls it how he understands what his own experiences are and what are other people's um and how he uses it to be a better doctor to better empathize with people to mm-hmm. understand what they're going through he says sometimes people say to him no i'm fine i'm fine and he says you know i know you're not fine because I'm, you, I know you're about to cry because I'm about to cry. You know, he's, he has yeah. that like that sort of hyper empathy that allows him to really get to know his patients and understand them. It's, it sounds like a very good quality in, in, yeah. a, in some ways, at least. It can be. And then also, on the other hand, there's obviously times at which it's very inconvenient. He's, he was when I met up with him uh, the day I met with him, he was he had been running a Tourette's clinic. So people mm-hmm. with tics mm-hmm. and he had had a patient who had a very severe tic in which he would uh, mash his hand against his teeth. And it had caused him to have to have surgery. It was so um, violent. And Joel said that every time this person ticked and suddenly mashed his um, jaw, Joel would also feel the same sensation of a, oh. uh, his tooth, his skin against his jaw. And he said it got to the point where he would, he almost yelped in pain. Um, and he would, he found it very difficult to talk to that patient because mm-hmm. of that. Um, he was feeling the the same sensation of pain as his mm-hmm. patient was. Yeah, yeah. And so obviously it can be, it can yeah. be difficult. As These a, mirror neurons, are they unique for humans or do animals have them? No. So uh, we, we found them first in animals, in monkeys, oh. and we haven't found them in all animals, but that's probably because it's that it's the sort of higher uh cognitive functions um it's the they think it gives us an ability to empathize Mm. so that's obviously something that not all animals are going to have um Mm. and yeah and he's he's uh he's just this facet and he's so eloquent and because he's a neurologist and he has understood his own condition he can explain it in a very very elegant way um uh, you mentioned this um researcher ramachandran Mm -hmm. um And it just reminds me, this story reminds me about, you know, these uh, experiments he does with a mirror box and mm-hmm. amputated arms. Yeah, uh, it's for the same reason, yeah. It is, yeah. yeah. You, you, you can explain it, because I think it's a fascinating experiment. <laughs> I'd have to think back to the experiment, but it's um, people who have phantom limbs, so they've had a, an arm, say, amputated, yeah. can often feel as if their arm is still there. Yeah. And that often phantom it pains. feels very painful, uh, often like that it's clenched in a fist, perhaps, and they can't unclench it. Mm. And it's it's... I think scientists think it's because the brain doesn't realize that the the neurons that are normally responsible for that arm are still there doing that same job, but the arm isn't there. Yeah. And so the brain's very confused. The brain doesn't like to be confused, so it it feels fancy. It it's like it pretends the arm's still there. Yeah, and um, thinks it's stuck and in some way, and that hurts because they, you can't then normally you'd be able to unclench your fist but because there's no signals there's no arm there to to respond to those signals you can't they can't unclench it Mm. um and so yeah ramachandran discovered that if you actually place a mirror um next to the phantom hand and place your your real hand on the other side of the mirror you'll see the reflection of your real hand in in the place where your phantom hand should be yeah and actually by unclenching your real hand um It, it tricks the brain. It seems to think, as though yeah. it makes your brain think that your phantom hand is actually unclenching yeah. it, and it can um, it can really help them. That's very um, fascinating. You use an illusion to trick the brain to get rid of pain. Yeah, that's quite fascinating, yeah. actually. And it's and you know they are related because this is all to do with how our um, body, our brain um, responds to the movements of our own body and incorporates mm. that into our body image. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you must also tell us about the man who wakes up 
dead. Yeah. Um, so this was Graham, and he had—he was one of the—he was the first person I spoke to, actually, one of the first people I spoke to. He had a condition called Cotard's disorder. Yeah. Um, and again, it's very rare, and it's the belief that you've died or a part of your body has died. And in Graham's case, he had um, quite severe depression, and he had tried to commit suicide by electrocuting himself. And he woke up in hospital, and he was convinced that his brain had died. And nothing you could say to him would... None of his doctors would be able to convince him otherwise. He he said that he no longer had any experience of the world. He no, he had no memories. He had no need to think about anything. He had no taste, no hunger, no thirst, no no strong emotions, no, no, no feeling of being alive. And, and, his, and the only conclusion he could come to was that his brain had died, but his body didn't know about it. And it seems like a strange conclusion, but actually the brain hates to be confused. And if something's gone wrong, it comes up with the best solution to the problem. So if, mm-hmm. for instance, Graham's brain isn't getting the sensations of his body anymore if something something had happened it it, it makes up the the easiest conclusion which in this case it was that you know that graham concluded that his brain had died and nothing you could say could convince him otherwise he um he would spend much of his days in a graveyard just because he's decided that that was the best place he should be or or just he said just sitting in a chair the chair i was sitting in actually at the time he said just staring at the wall because he was dead he had no need to eat he said no need to think drink do anything but he Um, but he obviously did otherwise he would die yeah well obviously yeah definitely and so he you know he relied on his brother and and family members to make sure that he ate and Mm. drank and um so his doctors then obviously scanned his brain and took a look at what was going on and two of the top neurologists in the world looked at him and they said they'd never i spoke to them later and one of them said i'd never seen a brain so low in activity in someone that was wasn't in a coma or unconscious um and so it's fascinating when you look at these scans of a of a a person who's awake and walking and talking and then you look at graham's uh, brain scan and you can just see there's absolutely barely any activity there and obviously what's happened is that somehow there is enough activity that is keeping him conscious Mm. for want of a better word but he he isn't actually aware that he's conscious Mm. he's not He's not, and and it sounds it's very difficult to understand. But um, well, he couldn't work or anything. No, or, no, no, and and he's actually the part of our brain that allows us to be rational and have rational thought was also very low in activity. So that kind of explains why you couldn't even explain to him, "Come on, Graham, mm. think about this rationally." Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it, essentially, his brain was pretty much unco- looked like it should be unconscious but for some reason he was mm. he was up walking and talking and there was that disconnect so um he spent three years thinking that he had died um and that gradually over time they whether they don't know whether it was the mixture of drugs that they gave him antidepressants um some stimulants uh and you know therapy or whether it was just the brain repairing itself from a, from the from the mm. suicide attempt um that did it but eventually he became um his thoughts came back and he started uh-huh. to feel to feel healthy so he's again. better now and so unfortunately he was he was better he was completely over the condition when i spoke to him he did unfortunately pass away from a, a, a an unrelated condition uh-huh. a few months before the book was published uh-huh. i see but it's interesting this you say that the brain needs to rationalize everything and i read somewhere about an experiment where you, through electromagnetic stimulation could make a, 
a person to to laugh mm. and then you ask the person why did you laugh and they always come up with an explanation mm-hmm. yeah you had these weird clothes yeah. or that thing happened which is obviously a, mm. just a fake reason mm. yeah uh, because the brain can't stand laughing with, with no reason. Exactly. <laughs> that's quite it's, and it's a really good example. It's, it's, it's weird to talk about the brain as if it's something different from you. That's, yeah. a, that's It's a difficult subject to talk about. But yeah, that's exactly what happens. It hates to be... The brain is essentially just a, a computer that is getting stimulus. It's getting data in, yeah. in you know from our, all of our senses. And it's putting that data together and coming up the right, most uh, intelligence solution to, to all the data. Um and yeah, if it, if something doesn't make sense, it come it just needs to find a reason for it. And um, people who are uh, split brain, so they have a yeah. um, uh, lesion down the middle of their brain, and so the two sides of the brain can't talk to each other. Mm. And and if you show them pictures in one, um, so the left side of the brain, the left eye, which mm. uh, would normally Crossed. be uh, crossed to the right, and and vice versa, um, if you show them two different pictures, like a, a chicken and a shovel, say, um, they and then you ask them which the language areas are on one side of the yeah. brain. And so the language areas can't talk to the, the other, other side. side of the brain. So it doesn't, the language areas don't know what the other side of the brain, which, which picture oh. they've seen. And so when you ask them to pick and say, well, wh- why did you pick these two pictures? Why are they related? They'll say, they'll make up, they'll say, oh, they'll see a shovel and they'll say, well, I thought that maybe um, it was snowing and we could shovel the snow um, <laughs> that in the chicken coop, you know, in the coop, but they won't realise that they picked it because it was a chicken yeah. and, a sh- and a shovel. I, perhaps I'm explaining that very well, but it, it's it's they 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 make up a reason for why they've picked certain pictures that yeah. um, they don't realise that actually uh, the real what the real reason is. Um, I read another version of that experiment. I think it was like you showed the picture for one eye only. And then you could say what you saw, but you couldn't write it. Yes. And then you did the opposite. And you, then you couldn't say what you saw, but you could write yes. it. Yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is really fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And the, uh, the strangest things of all, I think, is about these split brain personality people is that they fairly normally can function still. Yeah. I mean, in daily, mm. because they obviously see everything with both eyes. So they can fairly cope with life. Yeah. But it's like there is two, conscious, two consciousness in the in the same person yeah and that takes me to the other uh, you, we must talk about tommy as well uh who has this kind of split personality it's not quite oh, split personality uh. but it's um yeah so tommy um was a sort of self-confessed wrongen he um he came from a very poor family he had 12 brothers and sisters he stole for what he needed as a child he was taught never to show any emotions he fought a lot all of Almost all the brothers, I think, were in prison for one thing or another. Mm. He um, was very aggressive. He was in prison for uh, fraud. He um, um, he took hard drugs, including heroin. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one day he had a stroke on the. Uh, he was actually on the toilet, um, and he had he had two strokes. And he woke up in hospital, and um, he said it, that suddenly it was as though he could see the colour in the world and his do- people who knew him before and after said that it, he suddenly turned into this kind of monk-like person who would you know almost sweep the steps before him so that he wouldn't step on any living creature mm-hmm. he suddenly became he started talking in rhyme um, all of the time and he, he said that he had all of these emotions that he could never access before um, he became this beautifully eloquent lovely uh, emotional person. Um, he also used to paint about 
20 hours, 22 hours out of every day. He hardly slept. All he wanted to do was create and paint and, and, and do sculpture. And he, his family kind of thought, a lot of his family thought he mm. would slip back into the old Tommy. Um, some of them didn't believe that this was real, that, you know, that he could have such a different, be such a different person. Um, apart from his daughter, who who saw him the most and thought and see, saw that this was real, this wasn't an act. This was just who he was now. And what had happened was that areas that control our personality had been um, had been severed and regrown and had essentially just changed his personality. He was one person before mm. the stroke, and he was uh, another okay, person yeah, afterwards. Okay, yeah, that's yeah. Now I remember. So that it wasn't something that he could slip back and forth no. from. It was just two completely different people. And so I, he was a very interesting. Obviously, I only knew the Tommy that happened after the stroke, but speaking to his daughter was very interesting to find out how he differed you know how he changed yeah and he still is in this new personality um he style. he passed away uh-huh. um also from an unrelated uh, condition uh-huh, um see. but um he yeah i mean he he never went back to no. being the old tommy when he was but what about these uh, because you sometimes read about real or rather that's my question but people who have multi multiple personalities and I, i i think that it's quite controversial if that is real or not isn't it yeah i can't comment on that too far because it's not mm. a con- it's not a condition that i'm familiar with mm. and i i've avoided it a little bit because it is quite controversial as to yeah. whether it exists or not so it isn't something that i've covered um a lot myself you also talk about uh you talk yeah you you talk about synesthesia is that the word mm-hmm. in english yeah. synesthesia uh synesthesia in Swedish, very similar, um, where that different senses are mixed up. Yeah. Tell us about Ruben. So the, yeah, so there's lots of common types of synesthesia. So lots of people see numbers as having colors. Yeah. Um, and letters having colors. Some people see the months of the year as, as existing in front of them or the days of the week. They call it calendar synesthesia. Um, and it's all about how we see our different senses um, are placed in the brain in different areas, but some of them are crossed um, And for some people, these connections are stronger than others. And so when you see a letter, the part of the brain that's responsible for processing that letter is linked to the color red, say, in Mm. the brain. And therefore, whenever you see that letter, you see the color red at the same time. Um, and there's, like I say, there's. I think it's about four percent of the population have that. Have that? Yeah, it's quite common. Yeah, yeah. very. Co- people don't realize they have it until they they come to one of these talks or that you know they mm. they, they um, read it in a book and and um, they suddenly think, oh well, yeah, that's what I do. I never even realized that was weird, you know. Mm. Um, but for Ruben, he had a kind of synesthesia that linked the parts of the brain that are responsible for emotion with the parts of the brain that are responsible for color. And it meant that when he felt a strong emotion towards somebody, he would see a color, which he described as an aura um, around their body. Um, and he couldn't help but see this color. It wasn't something he could control. And so it was really interesting to see, you know, did he use it as a way of finding out about like how he felt about a person? I asked him and he said, not so much, but sometimes um, it would happen the other way around. He said, when somebody was wearing, say, yellow or green outfit, um, which were colors that, Uh, he associate which occur when he doesn't like somebody when he thinks somebody's rude or nasty sometimes that that color would trigger the emotion in him and he would think they're being rude or nasty and he'd realize that actually it's not them actually being rude or nasty it's oh. that the color that they're oh. wearing in the clothes they're wearing mm-hmm. uh, was triggering it and so he says sometimes it's, he has to separate it and think is this person actually being do i really think they're nasty or is it because of the color is make triggering <laughs> that in my and the really really fascinating extra thing about ruben was that he's colorblind 
And so uh-huh. he's one of the only two known <laughs> colorblind synesthetes in the world. And it means that he, see, he in real life, he can't see strong reds, bright reds or bright greens because he doesn't have the right cones, uh, cells in his eyes mm-hmm. that will respond to those wavelengths of light. And so he's not able to see those colors. Um, yet in his auras, he refers to a color. He says he can see different shades of green and red in his auras. And that, you know, it's that's fascinating fact to know because um, it means that color isn't, out there in the world it's actually something it's a concept that the brain creates and in his brain he can't he can't see red through the normal way that through the eyes eyes. but he can see red in his mind Mm. because it's it's being triggered by emotions by a different bit of the brain not not the eyes but Mm. the emotional area and that's just to me that kind of blows my mind that you could see a color that you can't see in real life but we will never know if if it is red uh, to us. Sure, <laughs> but he knows that there is a color, at least that that he, that he can see in his mind that he can't see in real life. Yeah, okay. And yeah. that is such a strange concept. That's very, it's very strange. And yeah. it's interesting because the other colorblind synesthete says exactly the same thing, uh-huh. and they call them Martian colors. And it's impossible for any of us to know what that must feel like because we can't yeah. imagine a new color. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's yeah, I, I find that as one of the most fascinating concepts. I read uh, about this British guy. I think it's called Tammet, who knows a lot of uh, decimals of mm-hmm. of pi. Right. You know, and he, I think he knows like twenty thousand yeah. decimals. And he he explains that he hasn't memorized it. He's watching some kind of color system. Oh, really? Uh, so he he can. If someone asks him to to read up these decimals. He's watching mm. that and just telling Reciting what he sees. It. That's interesting. That's quite so memory definitely works in a way that um, the more cues you have, so the more things that trigger a memory, the, the more uh, the more vivid that memory, the more easier it is to remember something. So yeah. if you're trying to remember a word or a shopping list, the brain likes to store things as images in an orderly location, and so you can instead rather it prefers that over words. So trying to learn a list of twelve words, you're going to find it quite difficult. If you actually translate those words into images and place them around a route, say you know well, say your route to work, mm. um, like physically in your mind, like place the objects along your route to work, you'll find that you'll be able to remember that list um, because of the way that the the, the brain loves to to remember things as images and be in 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 an orderly location and so it's things like that we can actually help ourselves by learning about you know people who can have incredible memories yeah we actually learn a lot about how our own memory works and how we can improve it it's very fascinating you uh, i just want to end with uh, because you have many other fascinating cases in this book but uh, we can't talk about Mm -hmm. all of them of course but uh, do you plan to write anything else now after this book? What's your next book yeah. project? Um, there are a few people, there was a community of people that I wanted to visit for this book but couldn't get to because they were very isolated in the edge of the Cape Mountains. Mm-hmm. And they're a community in which a condition still exists and because of the, the smallness of the, the community, it persists. And it's where um, a part of the brain degrades that's responsible for um, processing fear. And so they can't feel fear and mm. the interesting thing about this community of people is that the people who have it also don't tend to tell lies. And it makes sense when you think about it, because why do we tell a lie? We tell a lie because we we're fear fearful something. of the truth, of mm. telling the truth. Mm. And if you can't feel fear, then there's no reason to lie. And I just thought that was a really fascinating to, community to meet, a community right. that doesn't tell lies, you know, um, and can't feel fear. It just feels like a, a very interesting social experiment almost. 
Um, and so I wanted to go and see them. But that kind of gave me the idea of well, what other community... In this book, I focused on individuals, but perhaps what other communities of people are out there that are living or have strange, peculiar uh, brains or bodies that um, that influence the way they, they experience life. And mm. um, there's another group of people on a Greek island. Uh, well, there's a Greek island in which um, the population appear to live much longer than, than average and researchers are really interested to find out what is it these guys are doing that are living that making them all live to over 100 you know is it is it environmental is it genetic um so that's a really interesting i'd love to go to that island and, and you know sort yeah. of look into that and so there's there's various ideas i've got of, of of different communities around the world who have these sort of fascinating quirks about them and i'd quite like to uh, go and investigate there, isn't there a british or scottish maybe family who has some gene mutations so they can't speak uh, have you heard about that i haven't heard about that but i'll, I'll <laughs> check it <laughs> I'll out talk to you about that later yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah yeah i just i have a vague memory of something like that yeah. oh, we, we learned a lot about originally about the eye in the i think it was in the 70s 60s 70s mm-hmm. um by because of a family um who couldn't see and um, actually, it was gene- it was genetic. And actually, by studying them and their genes, we we worked out a lot about how the eye and the brain work yeah. together by studying this one family. Um, and so there is a lot we can learn um, from this case. In yeah. the same way, we can learn a lot from individuals. And I'm thinking these split brain people. Uh, because they don't do that operation anymore where they cut no not often unless they, it's a very it's kind of they do i think they might still do it it's only in extreme cases when epilepsy. they have to get rid of epilepsy yeah. yeah because i'm just thinking that if you stop doing that then then you have to really study them as long yeah. as they live because <laughs> yeah. you can probably learn a lot about consciousness yeah that. absolutely uh, one last question uh, actually um uh, I just want to hear your reflection on on the big discussion right now about artificial intelligence. I mean, you study the brain, but what is your what is your view of artificial intelligence? Will we be able to build machines with a consciousness? Oh, I... <laughs> what do you think? Just tell me what it's you think. It's such a hard question to answer. Mm. Can you? I've been told by scientists that you could replicate the brain in the minutest of detail all the connections, all the electrical activity, and yet it still won't have a consciousness. I tend to think that if you could completely replicate the brain, then up would pop a consciousness. Mm. Because I think that consciousness comes down to all of that activity that's going on in our brain. The question in my mind would be, do you need a body? as well Mm. because people focus on the brain in terms of consciousness and a soul and and this idea Mm. but actually our body is the reason that you know we have to the brain has to interact with the body it has to inter people who can't feel their heartbeat actually find it very difficult to make decisions it's a really Mm. classic experiment where um people who have uh, a heart um uh, what did you call it? Sorry, I've forgotten the word. Um, where they replace the heart, heart's failing, and so they put in a a fake uh, mm. heart essentially to keep mm. the heart beating. Um, pacemaker. Pacemaker. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and sometimes when the pacemaker isn't, because pacemaker doesn't react to the world in the same way as your heart reacts to the world, like beating very fast when you're scared. Mm. Sometimes these people can really find it difficult to make decisions, and it's really funny because it, it basically uh-huh. you realise that actually. We use the things that are going on in our body, our body's reaction to mm. the world, um, in order to understand the world and, and, and interpret it. And, and if you don't have a body, perhaps you won't interpret the world. You won't be able to interpret the world, and perhaps that's needed in order to have a consciousness. That's very interesting. And so I think yeah. actually we need bodies as well as brains. And 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 so would a computer with you know every brain cell work? You know, would it perhaps need 
the body as well i don't, I don't know the answer but um yeah it's, i mean it's, it's a fa- it's a fascinating question i don't it's, it is yeah will we ever answer it i'm not sure no well well we'll see one day if it's if it's happening or not probably but yeah. and also you think when you look at people like graham who is conscious as mm. what we would call conscious but doesn't believe he is mm. <laughs> well, you know and that's just down to some of his brain switching off you just think could you know what, what what is even what are we describing as consciousness what would what would our bar be what if there was a computer that was conscious but didn't think it was conscious you know yeah it, and a, also how would we know if how, it suddenly exactly. develops consciousness i mean how would we know yeah uh, it's it's a uh, well yeah it's a very interesting question but for some other time yes <laughs> uh, helen thanks a lot for talking to me thank you